Welcome. I am Neil Edwards, and this is The Leadership Range. This is Episode 2, and if we can get through 2, we can get through 4 and 8 and so on. I want to say thank you to everybody that listened to Episode 1. It gave us a great boost coming out of the gate. I really appreciate it. Leadership Range brings you content that elevates the voices of black and brown coaches and their allies through soulful conversations about all things at the intersections of leadership, teams and relationships, well-being, and inclusion in the context of corporate work. And it's also relevant to what's going on in society today. Now, I've already gotten great feedback from the first announcement of Leadership Range, from the trailer with Zach over at Living Corporate, and the first episode. Folks love the conversation, and I want to get better for you. Some listeners know me, and some don't. People want me to share a little bit more about who I am and maybe credentialize myself a little bit. What I'll say to that is, if you keep listening to the episodes, you'll get to know more about me in the conversations as I share stories and insights with other coaches and guests that come on the podcast. And so you'll get more of that over time. Uh, For now, I'll share a little bit. Uh, If you caught the conversation last week with Ayana Costa-Jordan, you might have heard her mention, I didn't grow up in the U.S. Uh, I get a lot of questions about my voice when people hear it for the first time because they can't quite place it. So I'll start there. I'm from the Bahamas, known officially as the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. It is an independent country, archipelago, off the southeast coast of Florida. I was born and raised there. My family of origin is there. I am very connected to my roots, and I've been dropping in to visit my family and and hang out and vacation a couple times a year, except, of course, for this year because of COVID-19. So, shout out to the Bahamas 242, my people, my family, my roots. Now, I moved to the U.S. for college, like a lot of people do, and then graduate school, and, you know, got my degrees and and went into the workforce um, to, to begin my professional career. So, my entire professional career has been in the United States, and it started out in management consulting. Uh, I did... a ton of work in IT transformation uh, projects, mega projects, and change management projects. I was always on the functional side of those projects, did a lot of people work. And uh, it is during that time that uh, I became a coach, a professional coach. So I am a professionally certified coach a couple times over through two international coaching federation coach training programs that are accredited. Uh, one through the Coactive Training Institute, CTI, as a certified professional coactive coach, and another through the Center for Right Relationships, or known, uh, known better as CRR Global Today, and I'm a certified organization and relationship systems coach through CRR Global. Related to my academic background in health and wellness and public health, I'm a national board-certified health and wellness coach, through the National Board of Medical Examiners and the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaching. And uh, I have a couple other credentials in team performance coaching, emotional and social intelligence coaching, adult development, leadership embodiment, and a bunch of tools that that us us coaches use to, to support us in our work.
I train and supervise new coaches globally as a faculty member at CRR Global. And I'm also faculty for CTI's Coactive Leadership Program, which is a 10-month experiential, contextual, transformative leadership development program. But that's inactive right now because of COVID-19. I've coached thousands of hours as an internal and external coach across all of the areas that we're going to be discussing here on Leadership Range. So for now, I'm just going to leave it there. And if you, like I said, if you continue listening to the podcast, you'll get to learn a little bit more about me. I want to shift and focus on what you're about to listen to today. This is a really special conversation. My special guest today is Kimberly Tiedekin. We talk about microaggressions. Kimberly has a huge heart for humanity that comes through in this conversation as much as it does through her work in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You'll hear Kimberly share a couple of stories about her childhood that so clearly and beautifully illustrate how she grew into who she is today in the world and the work that she does. It's so beautiful. I don't want to give it, give it away or give away anything in the conversation, of course, but what you will hear in this conversation is what leaders who are guilty of microaggressions need to do to correct their infractions, what things they need to do to work on uh, how to get better and how, how to show up um, if a subordinate comes to them and says, hey, you messed up, and doing that all while strengthening the relationship. We also talk about how to protect yourself if you have been harmed by microaggressions and how to approach the situation where you need to stand up for yourself and you need to set boundaries for yourself and so on. This is real for people who have been microaggressed and this is also real for leaders, especially white leaders or male leaders who want to get better. And this was such an important conversation for me so I think it's an important conversation for you. Uh, I have dealt with microaggressions and macroaggressions for years. I have dealt with them this year. I have dealt with them in the last few months and in the last few weeks at work. And I'm pretty good at being in these conversations. But at the same time, sometimes they're so egregious you can't deal with them right away because emotions run high and it's so stunning sometimes some of the things that people do or say to your face. So, you know, this is really a lesson today for a lot of people and I suspect that we'll have a lot more conversations about this particular topic over time uh, because it's, it's such an important one and microaggressions are so frequent in the workplace across so many dimensions of diversity. But anyway, what I want to do is get you into the conversation right now so you can have a listen, enjoy it, and give us your feedback. We want to hear everything you have to say so that we can get better for you. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, Neil. So happy to, to have you here. So before we get into this topic, you know, I want to share that we know each other. We're friends, we're colleagues and peers in the space of diversity, equity and inclusion. And I'm just so feel so privileged and an honor to have you on the show because I know who you are as a person. I know 
your professionalism and I know the wisdom that you bring to this space. So thank you for being here again. Thanks for having me, Neil. I was really excited about this ask and I'm just really looking forward to listening and participating in your podcast. So am I. I'm going to re-listen to everything I put out there and uh, so that I can hear the wisdom that we get from people like you. So thanks again for being here. Before we uh, jump into the topic, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you share your story as a leader and how your leadership range has evolved and expanded over time. Yeah, thanks, Neil. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself first, and then I'll share maybe two stories with you um, that will talk a little bit about why and how I think of leadership and the way I do. Um, so you said already that I work at the intersection of diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging, HR, and coaching. Um, I would tell you that I'm someone who believes in humor and love and honesty, um, but also in setting boundaries. Um, we chat about scuba diving all the time, and I also mm-hmm. love running and eating very nice meals in silence. That's the introvert in me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I think about myself and some things that define me, I'm the, the daughter of an unsighted man. Uh, and the product of two really strong, beautiful brown parents. Um, And I am the mom of two young kids under five and a special needs mom. And those things define um, who I am and and how I live my life right now. You know, when I think about being a leader and what helped to evolve the way I think about leadership, I'll tell you that it was two main stories that, that come to mind. Um, The first one was that my dad lost his vision when he was in his 40s. And in growing up, I had to be his eyes. I had to see for him. You know, he planted the seed of advocacy and community service in me uh, because I used to read for him and record it to tape. And as he navigated life, not only did I become more involved in being in community and being in service with and for others, But I also became more comfortable speaking up and creating space for him to be able to reach his full potential. Um, And that strength really matters to me. I think another story that really helped to make me who I am is um, maybe happened when I was in, I think I was a freshman in college. um, And I remember, you know, being home for Thanksgiving and um, my mom ate something and had an allergic reaction. um, And we drove to the hospital. And, um, you know, her throat was was closing up. And I remember Mm -hmm. being there understanding that I was her advocate, but the nurses, you know, it was really busy night. And they just said, you know, hey, we're so busy, just sit here and, and be tight. And my mom kept telling me, you know, can you get the nurse? Can you get the nurse? And I remember just saying, you know, hey, mom, the nurse said she'll be right back. And um, I looked up from my book because I was an an avid reader and realized that uh, my mom's face and throat were just so swollen. And I stood up in that moment and went out into the hallway and stopped caring about everything and yelled and screamed for the nurses who came in and they had to fight to intubate my mom. And if my mom would tell you that story, she would tell you that I saved her life. Mm. But when I'm telling you that story... I share it in that being a moment for me to say, I will no longer care about what other people think of me. I will always be in the best service for those around me. 
And that was a true defining moment. And I, I took that lesson and decided to use both of those to live my life. So you already know that I, I worked at PwC. I worked there for 20 years. I consider myself a, a recovering auditor. Um, and in my auditing space, you know, remember looking up and saying, how did I get here? It's a really great place, but is this what I want to do? And the mm -hmm. answer was no. So I leaned in to my voice and spoke up and um, moved to New York, jumped into HR and kept driving my need for knowledge and interaction and, you know, had conversations with many different partners, got engaged in diversity and inclusion, which gave me even more information through which to understand myself and others. And through the continuation of that learning, I would tell you that my leadership um, is still growing. I mean, my range is expanding and hopefully, Neil, it will continue to evolve because there's a lot that I don't know and a lot that I'll learn from others. But I'm happy that I get to share part of my journey with you. Uh, and also thank you for the role that you've had in my journey, Neil. No, you're, you're welcome. I, your stories is so powerful. And I, I, I love stories. I love stories about leadership. And as I listen to you, I hear strength, you know, from the time with your father and the recognition that or the acceptance that you needed to be strong and that you were strong and that you could use that to sort of live into the other part of what I heard, which was service and advocacy. And that's what I heard all the way through both of your stories. And, and that's who I know you to be beautifully. So a strong woman, an advocate, and uh, always kind, you know, steady and intentional. So I, I love that about you, and I love that it came through in your story. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, microaggressions, recovery, and building trust. Wow. So break that down for us. What? Give it some context. What do you mean when, when you say microaggressions, recovery, and building trust? Yeah. So microaggressions, I want to start with first. And so for those of you who don't know, they're, you know, indirect, subtle, unintentional actions, words of discrimination against folks who may be different. And those actions, again, while you may not intend for them to do so, make someone feel as though they are less valued, less respected, and just different. And when I think about the, just for some examples of, of microaggressions, uh, and I'll tell you that I experience them all the time. It's people saying, you know, can I touch your hair? Or maybe they don't ask and they just touch my hair. Or they tell me, oh, you're so articulate. Or you hear someone say, you know, you're really not like most other black people. Mm. One more is, oh, I see that you're in this leadership position. What was the special break that got you there? Ooh, every day. Oh, and <laughs> don't mean it, but your bias comes in and you say these things, you open your mouth, then you put your foot right in it. And then you say, all right, clearly as a leader, I can't leave this situation. So how am I going to come back from this? How am I going to address the harm that I cause and deepen the relationship with the person that I harmed? And that's important. It's important to me, Neil, because when I think about 
the way that this shows up in my life, I don't believe in canceling people out over mistakes like this because it's a missed opportunity on all sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, taking, well, the strength to stand in that as you're receiving, uh, you know, you're on the receiving end of the microaggression and to, to stay and to reflect on how you might respond again is uh, is a reflection of your own leadership. So, you know, here for context, that this is relevant in all of life. Uh, for us, for today, we're talking about in corporate America and what this looks like in the workplace. Doesn't mean we, you know, it doesn't happen in other areas and we may not touch on it, but really what what makes this so important in the corporate space, in the workplace? When we think about our role as leaders, we are always being watched and studied and people are always learning from us. So when you think about your responsibility, it's in the spotlight, especially now. Right now, we know we're in this time where Feelings are um, raw. Everything is under a microscope. There are people who feel as though they don't know how to move forward. So it's important for us all to take ownership of the impact that we have. When you think about microaggressions in the workplace, they're tied to the way that we give value to the credibility, to the interactions that others have. So especially if you're a leader in a group setting and you are a perpetrator of a microaggression towards someone else, you know, you're essentially harming that person's career, their path forward. So we need to take ownership of that and figure out how we navigate it, how we make things right with that person and how we make the microaggression that we were in a learning moment for everyone so that we can continue to elevate the folks around us. Mm-hmm. And that we is the, the we of leadership. If I'm hearing you correctly, what is the responsibility of a leader who perhaps does something that is received as a microaggression, is in fact a microaggression? What is the responsibility of the leader? Yeah, so the responsibility of, of the leader is to first be open to learning about the microaggression that they were a part of. You know, many times when we're going through this, you say something and you don't even realize that you said the wrong thing until it's too late. So someone will come back to you and share this with you. And the first thing that you need to do is be open to the feedback. And that takes a lot for you to be open to it. You need to think about how you're going to respond versus the general reactions that that we feel when someone tells us that we did something wrong, you think about the defensiveness that comes out or the denial mm-hmm. and what the impact of those are. Mm-hmm. So after you think about listening and thinking about how we're going to respond versus react, I encourage leaders to take a moment and put their own fragility aside. And in that moment, remember, it's not about you. This is about understanding the impact that you cause. So reflecting on that impact, on the harm that you caused in many different ways is so important, whether it's physical harm or emotional harm or spiritual harm or harm to the community, 
you have to reflect on that and make sure that you understand the full extent of the harm. Now, this sounds like a lot of work that a leader needs to do to prepare in advance. It feels like there's some some growth, some inner work to build up to becoming skillful at being able to respond to feedback that may not feel so great when you receive it, if you are, you know, the source of the microaggression. And so, you know, talk to me a little bit about feedback that is sort of clunky. You know, we can have people who look to our leadership, they've felt harm by you, and they, in fact, may not be very skillful in providing feedback and letting you know that you did something that harmed them. So it comes across perhaps in a harsh way or a clunky way or a clumsy way. What's the responsibility of the leader in that scenario? Oh, what good. would you say? Questions, 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 my friend. Mm-hmm. Being able to take the emotion away from the situation when someone is coming at you and telling you that you did something, of course, they're going to be nervous, maybe insecure or anxious in telling you that. But your job as the leader is to take some of that emotion out and listen to the words that they are saying, and then to ask questions that will allow you to dig deeper. It's an opportunity to ask that person about how they felt about what it means to them, and even to understand a little bit about the background or their perspective that allows them to show up and feel that hurt or um, whatever the other emotion is that that they may be feeling um, that may have been caused by you. So asking those questions and giving them the space to feel heard will be helpful for the leader, but also really helps to deepen that relationship so that you can move forward and grow that trust. Yes, thank you for that. There's a there's a muscle to be built there around asking questions in a skillful way when you perhaps feel a bit of a, an emotional charge as a leader. So there there is definitely practice there. And I you didn't say this, Kimberly, but there's something about asking questions that don't come across as an interrogation, <laughs> empathetic asking of questions. So, um, you know, the leader's listening, they're asking questions, they're responding, and and they're doing an okay job or a great job now because they've they've received this feedback. What do you want um, the person who might have been impacted to know about themselves and and what they need to do as they enter into these types of interactions or, or they've been, you know, they've experienced this microaggression? Yeah. Neil, I think it's so important to put yourself first. In this world, so many of us will experience microaggressions, and some people would say it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm-hmm. So you need to put yourself first and think about your own boundaries. If you were triggered by a microaggression and you need to step away and do a little mindfulness and meditation, do that first so that you are protecting yourself and you are okay. When addressing the microaggression, you'll need to think about the dynamics of the environment. If it was your boss who did this to you, or you know, if it was done in a, a meeting or some other um, environment, you need to put some thought into how you're going to address it so that you don't cause more damage to yourself. Um, obviously, we don't get to say the things in work that we, that we might want to say outside of work. 
Uh, so we have to take some patience and just take a moment to determine how to move forward. And then what I would also encourage them to do is weigh what they want to do with that relationship. I shared with you, Neil, that I don't believe in cancel culture, but I do believe in setting firm boundaries. If you want to grow the relationship, you need to put some time into thinking how you will do that mm-hmm. and when you want to do it. Yeah. How do you define or how would you describe what a boundary means in, in this context or in general? So people really understand what you're talking about when you say set boundaries. Yeah. So I think of a boundary as um, really a line that you don't want crossed. The way that I think about it for myself is that uh, I have boundaries of areas that I will talk about and areas that I won't talk about with people. And I'll give you an example. I shared with you that I am the mom of a special needs son. And Mm -hmm. so there are some times where people will use certain words um, that trigger me. And depending on how I am feeling in that moment or in that day, I know that I do not have the emotional or mental capacity to engage in a corrective conversation with them. And that becomes my boundary. I believe it's important to give yourself grace around those boundaries. So if I say to myself, hey, today is not the day that I'm going to interact with this person who said a certain word that triggers me, I am okay and standing in that boundary and not feeling bad about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love that because there's a, there's at least a dual role for the boundary. One noticing that something is bumped up against the boundary and you or I, you know, need to take a break. This is a signal to me that I need to go and renew. I need to give myself space. I need to protect myself. The boundary is also a tool that provides you information about the conversations you need to have with the person who's bumped up against the boundary. So there's the caring for oneself, and then it's also the advocacy for oneself at a time that makes sense for you, and in a way that makes sense for you after a little bit of reflection. I think that's what I heard. Yeah, and I I would say that's absolutely what you heard, Neil. Um, you know, the one thing that I'd like to add about boundaries is that as we grow our trust with people, sometimes those boundaries tend to get a little softer and can melt away. And so when I think about, especially with with microaggressions, right? We know that everyone's going to say something silly at some point in time. It's just human nature. Um, But when we think about the value of our relationships and the importance of those relationships, you know, you'll find that your boundaries will will move. Um, And that's why it's always so important to have candid conversations with people and to get to know one another more because we'll expand our awareness and hopefully we'll create fewer microaggressions because of that. Um, But we'll also feel more comfortable in the knowledge exchange and it'll make it a softer correction when these events do happen. Yeah, it feels so enriching to me for a relationship that has grown. You know, trust has grown in the relationship. There's perhaps a little bit more flexibility in the relationship and the relationship is strong. Uh, So the boundaries are softer. That doesn't mean that we need to accept or live with these microaggressions. 
I think the relationship becomes a little bit more skillful in dealing with them when they show up. You know, well-meaning people also create harm sometimes. Well-meaning people cross boundaries and, and there's a need for correction from time to time. Round off the edges, I call it. Let's round off the edges when we're having these crucial conversations. So let's talk about um, trust a little bit more in these relationships when there's a bit of uh, infraction. What do people need to do when there is an infraction and you do need to enter into those conversations to repair or to expand trust? Let's talk about that a little bit more. What What are some things that need to happen? Um, so I would tell you there's two parts of this. Um, so the first one is around the mutual agreement to address the conversation. You know, I think we can all think about situations where we've done something wrong and you want to go back and revisit it and the other person is just not open to it. And sometimes you got to leave it there. And so making sure that you have a mutual understanding that you're okay to revisit this mm-hmm. it is uh, extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would also say is that education is important. Right. If you have a, a misunderstanding with someone, it's not fair for you to create the expectation that you will put the weight of your education on that person's shoulders. You leaning on me more does not make me trust you more. So show me that you care by educating yourself and then continuing the dialogue with me. You know, across the board, Neil, when I think about trust, when I trust someone, it's because I know that they will continue to do the work and do the right thing and put the effort in. And that is what we need to demonstrate, not just communicate, but demonstrate in order to grow that trust. And it takes time. It takes time. And it takes, um, you know, I I, I love that because it, it points to, for the work that, that we both do as coaches and the work that I do as a relationship systems coach, I, I wear this lens. There's something to be said about designing the relationship so that we know and we know what the expectations are to be in this relationship together. And one of those expectations and agreements really might be, like you said, that it is, you know, each of our jobs to educate ourselves. And we just know that that's happening, you know? Um, So relationship design is something that really bubbles up for me as you describe the sorts of things that that need to happen in the context of the relationship when there's a infraction. It it continues to help the relationship to grow and thrive and for trust to expand. Something that's on my mind right now, which is the executive order um, that President Trump put out that Mm -hmm. touches on diversity and inclusion training. And um, I have a whole lot of thoughts on that, and I won't share all of them. But what I will say is that when we think about these microaggressions, for me, it really solidifies why it's so important for us to have conversations in this area. Because when we as a group come together around the reading of an article or the watching of a video or some other um, way to have a shared experience or shared education. And we speak about this. It gives us as a team the opportunity to build that trust and awareness and ask questions 
that make recovery a little bit easier later. So it's just so important to have that continued dialogue. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And, and again, I'm wearing, I'm wearing this relationship lens to have that dialogue and to practice having those dialogues strengthens the relationship. You know, there's this, this is compounding effect where the relationship becomes more and more capable of holding those conversations, no matter the difficulty of the conversations. In the absence of practicing those conversations, those muscles atrophy. You know, those metaphorical muscles, uh, conversational muscles atrophy. They shrink and, and you don't have the capacity and skill to have those conversations within the relationship. And therefore, you lose the opportunity to develop understanding and to, to build trust um, so leaning in to those difficult conversations and having, having those conversations is essential to recovery, but, but also just practicing them in general helps to expand trust. So, uh, Kimberly, for folks out there who are listening and don't have the privilege of having you as a coach or having a coach, is there anything else that you would want to offer as tips, one or two things that they might do for themselves to either avoid or bounce back from these infractions on, on the one hand, or to avoid or help the recovery. If you're the person who, you know, who commits the infraction, is there anything you want to offer as a tip or a trap to avoid? <laughs> yes, my friend. Uh, so first of all, what I'll say is um, a trap to avoid the trap to avoid is saying nothing. Believe it or not, it is better to make the error and learn and deepen your relationships that way than to be so safe that you are sterile. So avoid that. What I would tell you to do is um, educate yourself. Educate yourself in an interactive way. I'm not going to tell you to go out and Google all kinds of things because you can find all kinds of things. But what I will tell you is to join a book club, join a discussion group. Um, you can find living room conversations online and find some discussion guides that help you navigate these conversations. Uh, the 1619 Project, there's so many resources out there for you to read and discuss. The other area that I would recommend is to create a conversation buddy. Someone who is from a different perspective, different walk of life, different experience than you that will allow you to ask for feedback, to get more comfortable having those uncomfortable conversations and to be your sounding board as you navigate this space. There is no silver bullet, no easy answer. So getting yourself comfortable in doing the work with the recognition that you will at one point say the wrong thing and then make the most of it. I keep hearing half the conversation. Don't say nothing. You know, where the conversation doesn't exist, there is no relationship. And in the absence of that, the needle does not move. Trust does not grow. So thank you, Kimberly. So, 
how how can people get in touch with you um, if they want to reach out, get some more of you, get some more of this wisdom and this deliciousness? How can they find you? Oh, thank you, my friend. They can find me via email. It is Tidekin, T-I-E-D-E-K-E-N-K-S at gmail.com. Or they can find me on LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in slash Kimberly Tiedekin 01. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today, Kimberly. Our conversation was about microaggressions, recovery, and building trust. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Neil. This topic is big, folks. Microaggressions, recovery, and building trust. Wow. Indirect, subtle, unintentional words, actions of discrimination against folks who may be different. These make people feel less valued, less respected, and just hurt. They damage trust, and therefore they're damaging in the workplace where people need to feel safe, and quite frankly, need to feel safe so that they can do their best work, which is difficult when when you're surrounded by people who almost incessantly cause harm, even if not intentional. So if you don't want to be a microaggressor, then you need to do inner work and outer work. You need to create the kinds of alliances with people who are different from you and learn from them. And you need to listen, not defend. You need to allow yourself to be corrected, even by your subordinates. The world has changed. It's just more diverse. And if you want to be a great leader, which means you also need to be an inclusive leader, this is a part of the work that you need to do. And people like Kimberly and me and thousands of others can support you and help you with that if that is what you aspire to be, a great leader and an inclusive leader. Thank you, Kimberly, for bringing your heart and courage to Leadership Range. Thank you all for tuning in today. You can listen to new episodes every Monday. Please send your feedback or any topic suggestions that you have to neil at neiledwardscoaching.com. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash nedwards07. Thank you for listening.